Deeper down the rabbit hole, Saturday, 6 p.m., live in Toronto, Ontario, at the Queen City Curio Occult and Spiritual Store. Welcome, welcome. We are back here on Deeper Down the Rabbit Hole podcast, Queen City Curio video cast here every Saturday, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Let's go through our announcements first. First things first is that we have new products made. So if you want new products such as Money Draw, um, Fiery Wall Protection, uncrossing oil we got all that made in the last few days so we have it fresh off the batches there uh, also in terms of events we're going to be in toronto pagan pride and hamilton pagan pride in september and our upcoming events for the sponsors is we're just finishing up our chakra workshops for tomorrow and then we're going to western elementals and then going into the tarot for enchantments and divination so that's popping up every other sunday for our sponsors there so Today we have Pierce O'Garo. He is a Buddhist scholar. He works at Penn State. He is like the top dog when it comes to Buddhism. I know he's going to humble himself there, but in terms of literature, he, he is one of the main people you go to. If you have to read a Buddhist book on like any academic sources, he's probably one of the first ones you meet. So he's wrote many, many books. He has specifically an interest in Buddhist medicine, uh, and variations and then uh he also is a phd so welcome to the show pierce is there anything else you'd like to add to your bio that i missed <laughs> hey thanks Zach. Uh, you're very generous I, I i wouldn't say i'm a top dog in buddhism more generally but uh, buddhism and medicine is definitely my specialty um well i guess the one thing i would just add to what you said is uh i do have it in a previous life before i became an academic um i had a, I had a background in um as a practitioner for briefly of uh, Thai medicine, which included um, massage, herbal medicine, and some kind of like ritual healings and things like that. I know a lot of overlaps with the stuff that you guys are into. So um, yeah, I was, I was a practitioner. I, I learned in Thailand when I lived there for about, uh, over the course of about four years um, mm -hmm. before becoming a PhD. So. Right. But yeah, so, well, thanks for having me on. It's great to, great to well, be it's here. It's a pleasure. So you just released this book recently right? Buddhist. And it's a book on at least what I would understand to be as the meta concepts within Buddhism. And again, Buddhism is such a big area as a paradigm. So what got you draw, drawn to it first in the first place? Because I mean, given your background that you even said, you're like, well, of all the odds, I end up coming here. So why don't you tell that story for our listeners? Yeah, so, so the background of Buddhism specific more generally or the background to the uh, book or just your journey to it because yeah you know, yeah I mean, let's start with you first and then we'll get into this yeah okay sure so yeah i've um <clears throat> i've been interested in asian forms of spirituality and uh, among other kinds of things i was very into um uh sweat lodges and shamanism um really went from high school uh i went to a private school where there were teachers that taught courses like that and there was a um uh, Native American medicine man on our campus and uh, med people doing meditation and yoga and uh, got into martial arts and was exposed to all of this stuff really early and, and got pretty deep into it. Um, as, a, as a practitioner, um, went to college, I took some courses in related things, um, majored in anthropology and cognitive science so I could study uh, some of these kinds of um, practices. And then when I graduated from college, I went off to Asia. Um, up, up, up to that point, Buddhism hadn't been the main thing I was interested in, um, but uh, through sort of a series of accidents in, in, in Asia, just kind of like the fates took me to Thailand, um, and this is kind of where all of my interests kind of crystallized and came together. Um, I, I just mentioned I, I lived there over the course of four years. I, I was only supposed to be in Thailand for a couple of weeks, but I very quickly got attuned to um, both the medical traditions and also the uh, the, the Buddhist traditions and also this whole sort of rich world of 
uh, magic and healing and so forth. And so that, that kind of captivated me. And I just, I stayed, um, became a practitioner. Um, but uh, all along, I was, even when I was, you know, primarily interested in the practice, I always was interested in the history and kind of the, the backstory to how Buddhism and yoga and Chinese medicine and Ayurveda and all these different traditions are um, related. Uh, and so that, that puzzle, how are these related um, historically, sort of stuck with me over all of those years. Um, and eventually, you know, Fork in the Road came where I realized that that actually was my primary interest. It wasn't so much the, being a practitioner, but, but actually sort of digging into um, the history of these practices. And at that point, I came back um, uh, to the U.S. to University of Virginia, where I had gone to undergraduate, came back and uh, started graduate school. So, um, you know, that, that at that point, that's I, a whole journey I, there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I embarked on a, on a really different journey. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, and, you know, it's been about um, it's been 20 years since I 20 over 20 years, 22 years since I moved back. So, um, you know, since that time, I, I, I've continued to speak to practitioner audiences. And I did I did practice briefly when I got back for a couple of years. Um, but uh, more and more, you know, the, the practice has fallen by the wayside and the, and the, uh, the, the scholarship has been sort of my primary uh, occupation. Right, right. Yeah, I know, like, generally, when I was perusing the book and Andrea, who can't be with us tonight because of a work obligation, um, we were looking at this and the meta concepts and what you described in your book, Buddhish, it, it really is like, why, why a meta concept book? Like, why not just talk about Buddhism, right? Because there's so many books on Buddhism. So why specifically the yeah. bad, uh, skeleton? Yeah, so um, I, the, the, the book kind of came out of, it came out of my teaching, both in the college environment, but also I've been teaching, um, you know, just kind of intro Buddhism or things related to Buddhism and medicine um, for practitioners as well. Um, uh, practitioners of Asian medicine, I mean. Uh, so, um, you know, after decades of, of teaching, um, I, I, I just have come to kind of be a little bit dissatisfied with the, the introduction textbooks that are out there, um, that I, at least the ones that I know, and I, I kind of perused a lot of them over the years, trying them out. Um, and I feel like the, the, the problem for me is that either the books are uh, written by Dharma teachers. And so they're very much coming from a particular sectarian perspective where they want to, you know, promote the views of their own particular form of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. uh, or it's a super dense kind of um, historical, you know, textbook type uh, treatment by a scholar, which is, you know, maybe good for certain undergraduate um, environments, but not really that readable for, a, for just an ordinary person or you know, increasingly, you know, my, my courses are sort of 17 year olds who kind of like, you know, 17, 18 year olds who, who, who may not have any sort of invested interest in, in Buddhism whatsoever. And so um, I feel like those books kind of turn people off right away. Um, and so I was looking for a sort of a book in, in the sweet spot in between something that was objective, gave you kind of the lay of the land, the big picture, but didn't push a particular uh, viewpoint in terms of, you know, um, a particular Buddhist sect, or, or even you know that Buddhism is necessarily um, correct or 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 useful. So I, I in this so I wasn't able to find that book. So I wrote it, and in this book, oh, right. I, that neutral position that I just described in between those yeah, two. Yeah, I know it was a very neutral position. I, I I laughed at it when like in that renunciation chapter, you guys like, well, you know, I have problems with this renunciation thing. I'm like, I do too, right? <laughs> yeah. But that it's like you you're hitting all the major viewpoints that would fall into the paradigm. And I think even just saying like, well, you have I wouldn't say a problem with the renunciation, but it's like, well, it just doesn't match your lifestyle currently. Yeah, right. yeah. So can you so talk was, a bit more about that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm pretty honest in the book about like I I have uh, tried various Buddhist practices. Um, at one point, yeah, I described in the renunciation chapter that at one point I I did go to live in a monastery in Thailand as a I was never a monk but a resident layperson mm -hmm. for a couple of months. Um, you know, and I'm I'm kind of honest in the book about just my own personal journey. I I don't make I, I, mostly I try to be objective in introducing things, but I do occasionally sort of jump in and say, yeah, you know, I tried that and it, it, it did work for me or, or, 
or, you know, actually I got a lot of value out of doing this myself. So I do, I do express my, my opinions here and there, um, throughout the book. Not, not all, not all the time. Um, but, but, but enough to make, uh, I, I'm going for a sort of like a, a, a voice that's relatable and trustworthy as a narrator. So I feel like being a little bit sort of open about my own experiences, um, which scholars don't do at all. So it's a very no, different no. So that's why I found yeah, like, when I read it, I was like, this, he gets it. This is hilarious because that's what <laughs> I say too. Yeah. But it's like, yeah, there's, I mean, it's a very different mindset between like it's an introduction. You're, you're pretty much like on the ground, laying it down, having a, like they say, a coffee conversation with people. Yeah. Then yeah. there's the academic pedigree where they stand on the white tower. It's like, here, here's all this. And you're like, no, that's not my thing. I, I do it. But. Eh. <laughs> yeah yeah i try try to be relatable um yeah so the book is like it's the 20 uh the 20 sort of most frequently encountered concepts i guess from buddhism um and then the subtitle says it's you know uh, a, a guide to those ideas for the for the curious and skeptical so i try to sort of like play both sides of that coin you know uh, stoke people's curiosity but then also maintain kind of a you know a skeptical stance throughout the book and and, and allow people to make their own decisions about what to make of all of this. Um, and, and I don't hold back about kind of introducing some of the, the negative, the negativities, mm-hmm. um, or the negative sides or the, you know, the, the, the skeletons in the closet, um, with Absolutely. Buddhism as well as the, as well as the promises and the, the, you know, the great, uh, um, claims of, you know, um, of the tradition as well. So. Absolutely. And I think that, that is one of the, other pieces I enjoyed about the book. You didn't hold back. I mean, you kept neutral on it, but it's like even things like when you talked about rituals and then the magical cultivation practices around that. You didn't really hold back. You're like, it might work. It might not work. Give it a try, but do some research, figure it out, experiment. Hmm. Right. And I think that in itself um, says a lot to a reader that's fresh because it's as you said most people would take a philosophical viewpoint and say well okay it's this is just a nice mindfulness awareness practice but you said no it's not not by its history and not by its traditions uh so you did actually take a stand on that but you also still kept neutral it was like well you're entitled to what you're thinking but this is not part of the paradigm or this is part of the paradigm and you can choose yeah yeah so i I definitely was trying to sort of do a little bit of myth busting in terms of Mm -hmm. kind of the I don't know, the stereotypes about Buddhism or the sort of, yeah, the mindfulness kind of uh, movements, kind of, you know, self-presentation. I, I, I tried to sort of, uh, I guess, debunk or myth bust some, some of those things um, and just kind of leave it up to the reader to decide what, what they want to do. Um, and yeah, so I think what you're referring to with the, with the ritual practices is in that part of the book, I'm kind of pushing back against, you, you do find this frequently among um, mindfulness mm-hmm. practitioners or just kind of like Western Western Buddhists or, or people who don't have Buddhism within their cultural heritage of their family right. or their, their culture. Uh, a lot of times we'll say, you know, Buddhism's a, oh, Buddhism's a philosophy or it's a way of life. And it basically all boils down to meditation. And that, and that's where I, you know, kind of intervene and say, well, hold on a sec, because like the, you know, the vast majority of Buddhists throughout history you know, have been Asian, uh, they haven't been monastics, they haven't actually, you know, exclusively practiced meditation. In fact, like most lay Asian Buddhists throughout history didn't practice very much meditation. It was something that the monks did, but the, mm-hmm. the lay people didn't. And, and so ritual really has been the primary sort of uh, backbone of the Buddhist tradition for, you know, since its inception. Um, so, so let's not just so quickly, you know, brush that under the rug and, and, and deny its importance within the tradition. Let's like, you know, let's learn learn more about it. And and um, yeah. So anyway, that, that's just one example of those kinds of push, you know, pushing back against stereotypes that that I try to do throughout the book. And that's, I guess, the scholarly kind of like edge to the book, right? Is is those, yeah. those kinds of parts. Um, but then I also tell stories and tell you know, tell tell uh, yeah, stories about my own travels, my own experiences, you know, things I saw. R- relate some Buddhist parables and. Um, you know, narratives, legends, and so forth. Um, yeah, and just uh, try to make it a fun read with a lot of different different uh, dimensions to it so that it keeps it, you know, fresh and moving. Right, right. And this is where I would say, like, you know, even in the elucidation of those, like, parables, legends, and even your personal stories, is there a particular story that really stands out for you? Hmm. 
Well, I mean, I guess I'll say the one the one story that the, my students like the most um, sure. that they talk about the most in class um, is that there's a story in the chapter about karma about these um, about the birds in cages. Um, so I don't I don't know if you want you want me to tell that story. Yeah, go that, for it. Yeah. yeah so it's so um, whatever you want, man. I mean, anybody who's anybody who's encountered Buddhism in Asia or temples in Asia more generally will will recognize this sort of thing. But, um, you know, the first time I was in Thailand, I came across a, a, a Buddhist temple. It happened to be uh, birds in cages that a woman was selling. And there's sort of the tradition, right, where you, you buy the birds and release the birds. And this is uh, giving them their freedom. So it's a it's good karma, good karmic merit for you to do that. And it's a really common practice, whether it's like releasing fish or um, mm-hmm. turtles or birds or whatever. It, it's really common practice in Asian Buddhism. Um, and uh, so, you know, so I, I talk about in the book that I came across this woman selling these birds. And then I noticed behind in the back of the temple that that her son is collecting birds and putting them into cages and bringing them to his mom so she's it's kind of a cycle she's you know selling the birds for people to release them and then her son is recapturing them and then she's reselling them and it's kind of like a cycle like that and so i introduced that in the chapter yeah 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 so i introduced that in the chapter on karma just to talk about so um you know what would you do in that situation or you know what should i do in that situation here i am in thailand encountering this for the first time and i talk about how well you know the first the first glance you kind of think um you should release the birds because then they're free and that's you know the act of kindness but then when you think about when you when you see the sun recapturing them then you're like well wait a minute i'm just kind of like supporting this whole industry that kind of like creates suffering for birds so maybe i shouldn't buy the birds but but then you know then i start thinking and i'm like well maybe you know i'm in i'm an an american in thailand i got like you know by definition i'm wealthy um you know my dollar converts to to bot you know in 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 my favor why not just buy out all of these birds because it's really not that much money and just send you know let the people go home for the day and then i'm like yeah but wait if i do that then they'll come back tomorrow with even more members of their family selling more birds because you know it becomes this kind of like you know um this attractive profession anyway people who have who are Buddhist or who have encountered this in the past will already kind of know like where they land on, on the question of the birds or not. But, but I wanted to bring this out for the reader, um, somebody who's new to Buddhism, new to the idea of karma, just to, just to point out that like karma isn't sort of like a black and white kind of, you know, uh, you're on the naughty or the nice list or you're, you know, it's things are either like good or evil, but there's karma is more like a, a framework or a tool to use to think through the ethics of the situation and you kind of like have to unpack the situation layer by layer thinking through the the effect of your actions on other beings um and so i just use that story as like a way of um introducing the concept of you know kind of these buddhist doctrines as being tools to think with rather than just black and white you know things to accept or reject uh, anyhow, my students love this story because then we have a big debate in class about what should you, what what would you have done? And some students, you know, buy all the birds. Some students don't want to, you know, buy the birds at all. And it, it it's a lot of fun to discuss and just kind of like think through ethics from this new standpoint that's less black and white and all about the shades of gray. Well, absolutely, and I think it's even. I think when you were even discussing certain pieces, you're like, well, this is a reflection on you right whatever you're choosing is a reflection on you so if you buy all the birds or you don't buy the birds or you hustle the birds i mean that's just showing you within the framework of well the play and what you choose is just an illusion anyways right and that can be a whole conversation by itself but just even the choices is showing something of what you're choosing to everyone else and the interconnectedness yeah, I mean, one of the places I kind of I, I bring that out is in the discussion I just mentioned previously about a lot of people think Buddhism's a, or they say Buddhism's a philosophy or a way of life. Right. And so, yeah, that's why I kind of point that out there. Well, if you think that, that says more about your ideas about Buddhism than it does about Buddhism itself, right? Um, to say Buddhism's not a religion tells me more about you than it does about Buddhism. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's kind of uh, one of those places in the book where I bring that out. Mm-hmm. 
And then um, one of the YouTube viewers was saying they laughed at the compassion piece on uh, when you talked about the mosquito story. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> they even referenced the page specifically for All right. on YouTube. So there. Well, thanks for reading. On it. <laughs> thanks for reading. Thanks for thanks for reading closely. <clears throat> right. So with like you know you went to thai buddhism that's a specific type of buddhism so this is where it's like when you're learning things about like east asian buddhism we know that's a whole different animal so how how did that conversation go yeah. just in your own learning just because i know from a viewpoint they do have very different interpretations on how to practice yeah totally different totally different yeah yeah so my yeah my, like i said my exposure to buddhism was was initially i mean you know i read a book or two or, or taken some classes before but but really mo the in-depth introduction to buddhism was when i got to thailand and, and sort of i came away from those four years just with the idea that oh you know this is what buddhism is um because that's the only form of buddhism i really knew um and but as i was increasingly interested in um like i said earlier the interconnections between mm -hmm. chinese medicine and yoga and buddhism and ayurveda and these other forms of, of healing around around asia um came back into graduate school, I actually started uh, working on Thai materials, but very quickly into those studies, I learned um, that the historical record in Thailand uh, is pretty sparse in terms of being able to do a history of Buddhism and medicine in Thailand. It really would be, you know, a modern history or it would be a, a contemporary kind of ethnographic study. Um, both of which I, I have done a little bit of, um, but but I really was interested in kind of the, the, the older history, the deeper roots of the movements of um, religious and medical ideas around Asia. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, early on in, in graduate school, I, I was in a master's degree in East Asian studies. So it was it was pretty wide in terms of what I could choose to do. So I started working on Thailand, but then gravitated over to looking at some of the Chinese materials. And I discovered at that time, it was right when Michelle Strickman's book, Chinese Magical Medicine, came out um, in 2002. And when I discovered that book, I was just like, oh, my God, this is this is what I want to study. Um, and it because it was very much the same kind of rich um, uh, array of practices mm -hmm. of, of both religious and medical practices mixed together with magic and demonology and meditation and all, all the stuff that I was interested in all sort of tangled together. Uh, but it was all happening 1500 years before the stuff that I was seeing in Thailand. And I just thought like that was an amazing uh, field to get into. Uh, Michel Strickman's book was published after he passed away. And at the time, I sort of like was doing kind of a literature review and I just saw basically nobody was working on this. Um, and I just saw like an open lane to kind of pick up where Michelle Strickman left off and really delve into the um, in, in, into the subject of Buddhist medicine in China. Uh, so I actually, at that point in time, shifted gears, started taking classes in Chinese history, started taking classical Chinese um, language, uh, finished out my master's degree, and then, and then um, transferred to uh, Johns Hopkins school of medicine to do my phd in the history of medicine department completely focused on chinese buddhist medicine um, right and that's where so, you and me connect on things because you know my background as a registered acupuncturist chinese medicine professor and also doing buddhist work all the time i'm like yep all right i mm -hmm. i have to talk to you and it's one of those things where you know from the sino standard it is interesting to do those cross comparisons because I know a lot of people like to do comparisons to Tibetan Buddhism specifically. I'm like, no, completely different animal. Don't don't try to overlay them, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a completely other 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 form of Buddhism and medicine too, right? So, um, I, I I mean, I do think that these three, you know, so Thai medicine and Buddhism, that mixture mm -hmm. in in contemporary Thailand, and then like medieval uh, Chinese materials from the first millennium. And then also the Tibetan materials from slightly later, kind of early second millennium, uh, they, they are interesting to compare. Um, well, they but, are. But they, they can't be conflated together as being like, oh, this is all just Buddhist medicine because they're, the forms of Buddhism are so different and the forms of medicine are so different that, um, 
that, that, that they can't just be like clumped together. And so a lot of the work I've been doing in the last, um, what, like seven or eight years has been, or I guess it's 10 now, um, has been to produce not the book we're talking about today, Buddhist, but but my other book that came out this year, which is the Global History of Buddhism and Medicine. Yeah, uh, it's an academic book that came out with Columbia University Press. Um, so that book and all of the work that's gone into creating that book, all the ground the groundwork that went into that, really has been focused on exactly that question, like separating out these strands of yoga, Ayurveda, Chinese medicine, other forms of healing. And then separating out the different forms of Buddhism around Asia and then sort of demonstrating how they all have historically interacted together. Right. So if there was like, you know, I know you do the intro classes, however, like for someone just fresh coming into Buddhism, they're like, I heard this because of, I don't know, Western culture, it's pretty prevalent, right? They have some interests are like karma is bad. You know, you do something bad. It's the judgment and how do you unwind and unpack this for someone beginning saying like what's the simplest concept that you could say to them to kind of give them a feel of what well buddhism as a whole and i mean it's a big hole um yeah <laughs> yeah well I, so i couldn't i couldn't narrow it down to one i so I, I chose 20. Sure, i mean we got the time for this, so. <laughs> for this book i had to choose 20 ideas because i could because i couldn't choose one uh but yeah i mean um uh, what do I say? Well, I think um, one of one of the points I make early on in the book, um, I, I think, is um, may, maybe a, a, a sort of a point of separation between traditions, um, mm -hmm. and, and that is that uh, Buddhism, basically, almost all forms of Buddhism. There's a few exceptions, like Pure Land Buddhism, which is a, a sort of a different thing. But but it is but, it is a whole animal. <laughs> almost all forms of Buddhism. Um, kind of adhere to the notion that um, we as human beings have uh, some work to do in in cultivating a certain kind of insight um, and that this work can't be done for us by anybody else, that we have to take on the task ourselves of working um, towards gaining those insights. Um, of course, then they extrapolate that over different many different lifetimes and exactly what insight you're supposed to be working on is different from, you know, tradition to tradition and so forth. But the, the basic idea that, that, that like the meaning of life is a self-improvement project of some kind that ultimately winds up with transcending the self, um, I think is maybe sort of like the headline, you know, um, uh, the, the tagline for Buddhism, right? I, as opposed to other traditions. So I'm, I know there's, you know, there's other traditions where, um, you know, God is going to either save you or not. And there's, you know, all you can do is have faith. Um, or there's other traditions where, you know, there's other, other things are the main idea. Um, so that, I think, I think maybe that's where I would start with Buddhism, because if, if you're, if you're, if you're not into that message, you're not into Buddhism, right? Um, right. And <laughs> so I, this really gets to a point where it could be contention for some Buddhists. If you got hate mail on Buddhism, send it to me personally, right? So this is where, where does the ego take place on this? Because I've heard people, you know, generally most people want to think Buddhism is like, oh, you're trying to destroy your ego or you're trying to dissolve it. Then you have like more left hand path Buddhists. I would say it's like, ah, uh, no, it's about you transcending yourself and accepting different pieces of yourself. This is why we talk about the sufferings, this is why they will talk about the hells, the different layers for all the devas, etc. Right? So where does that fit in, uh, fit in philosophically now? Mm. Yeah, I, we're, we're kind of getting off into Dharma teaching territory, which I, right. I, I tend not to do. But um, uh, the, the point, the, I guess the, the point I would say as, like a, as a cultural historian, as somebody who's like studied all these different traditions, is... Um, you know, whatever position, philosophical position, a Dharma teacher would take on that question is directly refuted by like 700 other Buddhists, right, from other traditions. So, right. so, so like, you know, I, I find it really difficult on basically any point to say like, you know, there's the Buddhist take on this, um, mm -hmm. other than the really general kind of like, you know, you know, self-improvement kind of 
an ultimate transcendence kind of right. answer I gave earlier, which even then I said, well, and then, but then there's the Pure Land Buddhists who are different, right? right? So I, I just feel like it's um, really shaky territory to make any generalizations at all um, mm -hmm. about any of this because, you know, there, there are for sure millions of Buddhists who have a completely different view um, than whichever, whichever view is being, is being um, expressed on that. So, um, you know, I, yeah, I mean, in terms of the self-transcendence piece of the puzzle or, or goal of Buddhism, you know, that, that, that is in Buddhist terms normally described as, you know, realizing that there, that there never was a self to begin with, right? So that's, that's normally the kind of the, the, the language that, that's used about that. And, and so some of these structures like the ego, you know, like, um, you know, other, other kinds of conventional ideas about self and identity and so forth, um, you know, ultimately in most forms of Buddhism are things that sort of like are seen through mm -hmm. a lot, at a certain point in the practice. Um, but they're not usually, you don't usually start by trying to see through those. You don't usually start from the very beginning by like, oh, my ego, I need to overcome it, right? It's Buddhism is, um, that's a little bit like cart before horse sort of thing, right? right. Where um, Buddhism, you know, would, would, I think most forms of Buddhism would have you start by sort of like putting that question on the shelf and just, you know, reflecting or doing meditation or doing some other kinds of practices that sort of like get you started um, in a more practical mode bef right. before you sort of start to kind of grapple with the ultimate questions of philosophy. Um, I, I had a moment like this in, in just to, you know, go back to storytelling. I had a yeah. moment like this for me in, in uh, Thailand when I, the very first time I was in Thailand initially in the, in the first year um, where I, I got interested in staying in a monastery and went to the monastery and was talking with the monks and so forth. And I was like, yeah, you know, I might be interested in staying, you know, for a longer time, but, but like, I just, I just don't see why, you know, I have to shave my head. I'm, I'm a little bit sort of attached to my, I had like really long dreadlocks. Yeah. I'm like a little bit attached to my dreadlocks, but like, it's, it, you know, it's just like, it's just appearances. Like, why, why does it matter? You know, why can't I, you know, why, why would I have to shave my head? You know, I wasn't like challenging their policies, but I just was like curious about that. Um, you know, and their answer basically was like, was like, just, you know, just don't worry about it. Just go, go do your thing, do your meditation. Don't worry about it. Um, you know, at a certain point, you'll see that you're not so attached to your hair anymore. <laughs> and shaving, it won't be such a big deal. Right. So, um, so I feel like that kind of answer you could give to kind of the whole question that, you know, about like ego transcendence and, you know, non-self personality, all that stuff, you know, and that's usually a lot of times that's kind of the obstacle for people who are interested in Buddhism. It's like, oh, I, I don't know, the philosophy doesn't just doesn't really jive. And that's fine. If you don't like the philosophy, you know, it doesn't matter. <laughs> just you can you can go elsewhere. But 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 in in Buddhist monastic communities and, you know, practice communities i think often the answer would be well don't worry about the philosophy just put it on the shelf and just do you something. know just, <laughs> just do some something to make yourself you know a happier person and you know whether it's meditation or other kinds of cultivation and eventually you know you come to the point where you accept they're not the philosophy um when, once it becomes relevant right then you can start thinking about it absolutely i think it was i was watching a documentary i think a few it was probably two three months back and i think it was like a food thing and a person was basically in thailand saying like okay i'm trying to get some thai cooking but then he's taking photos like every monk here is like breaking every single rule that i know buddhism to be one's smoking one's drinking he's like and they're all like whatever makes you happy we choose our vices and then we'll get over them at some point too and he was like what <laughs> so um, I found that to be funny on that one, um, just because, again, it's the Western shock where they have this stereotype. But when you go in Asia, it's like, well, do do what, what makes you happy, do what works, whatever that means to you. Yeah. And, and then you do have, like, the super puritanical, moralizing, kind of conservative, you know, members of the Sangha too, or, or orders yeah. of the Sangha too, that are like that. Um, so yeah, but 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 um, I, I do think on the whole, Buddhism tends to, in my experience anyway, the Buddhism that I've I've come in contact tend to be 
um, you know, they tend to sort of like appreciate the limitations of where you're, you're at with your own personal uh, practice, uh, your own personal life. And, 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 you know, it's not like you're going to burn an eternal damnation because of, you know, breaking a few, a few rules. Um, it's about you know, maybe, maybe you'll be reborn in hell a few, a few lifetimes, but then you'll eventually have a chance to, you know, do over and keep, uh, keep working. Right. So, so it's a little bit more, I think, um, yeah, a little bit more lenient in terms of, or a little less puritanical in terms of, in those moral kind of questions. usually. Right. Right. And then I know this is a little bit off topic on the book. Um, but this is where, when you were, again, you're generally comparing Asian systems or at least different types of Buddhism. If you give a, could you give a flavor for the different types? Like I know there's Sino Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, Thai Buddhism, like as a whole. So could you give a flavor for viewers if they're interested? Um, just because they may be like, yeah, this is nice. We get a meta concept, but I don't know which one is which given mm -hmm. their personality, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's important. Um... And it's important because, uh, I mean, one, one of the things I say early on in the book, one of the reasons for writing the book is if you're interested in Buddhism and you decide what you're going to do is go to the bookstore and grab a book on, Bud <clears throat> on Buddhism, or you're going to go to a meditation group, a uh, Buddhist meditation group. <clears throat> <clears throat> Sorry. Um, odds are you're going to wind up with one or another mm -hmm. sectarian view of Buddhism, right? Just like me. I, I, I lived in Thailand for you know, for four years and came back with a very kind of unidimensional opinion about what Buddhism was about, because that's all I knew, right? right. Um, and so it's, I think it's better to start with this kind of like broad overview, um, you know, but, which is why I wrote the book, because there aren't too many of those out there that are Absolutely. readable, um, that aren't super, super dry academic works. So, so yeah, one of the chapters in my book, I'm like, okay, um, there's, there's, there's four or five major kind of divisions within Buddhism mm -hmm. that you should be aware of as a Western person, not familiar with Buddhism, wanting to become interested in Buddhism. There's, there's five things you, sh you should be aware of. So the first one is Theravada Buddhism. Uh, mm -hmm. Theravada Buddhism is practiced primarily in Southeast Asia. Of course, now they're all practiced all over the world. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but Theravada Buddhism is the source for a lot of the uh, mindfulness and uh, vipassana style meditation, um, more secular styles of meditation that are circulating around in the West today. Um, so it may be of interest for that reason. Uh, it, it it is at least at least in terms of the monastic practice, um, very heavily focused on meditation. Um, and uh, but at the same time, something kind of like a little bit of a counterpoint is that. Uh, in actual daily practice amongst lay people, it's just filled with all kinds of uh, magical and occult practices. Um, so, for your audience, that might be that might be super interesting. Um, uh, in that form of Buddhism, uh, stereotypically, at least, you are uh, your primary focus is on your own personal meditation to become uh, an awakened person. Um, second form of Buddhism. Mahayana uh, means the great vehicle or the greater vehicle. Um, and it's kind of like, I call it in the book, it's like, it's like maybe I don't call it in the book this, but it's, it's kind of like the big, the big inclusive form of Buddhism that, that um, uh, has all kinds of different sects and different kind of um, groups of, uh, uh, affiliated with it. So it's very difficult to, to kind of summarize the whole thing. That, um, that's a hard one to summarize, but I understand <laughs> Yeah, but I would I would say I would say what distinguishes Theravada from Mahayana just kind of like um, some kind of like key points, and that, that it's not a hundred percent of the time. It's not going to apply a hundred percent of the time, but just to give a flavor, like you said, um, meditation would be would be maybe a little bit further down the list of priorities. The first priority is um, compassion and um, expressing compassion in the world for for other beings. It, to the point where the goal within that form of Buddhism is normally not to get yourself enlightened, but to work for the awakening of the whole, of the whole, um, the whole mass of, of sentient beings. Um, so there's other differences too, like um, this form of Buddhism, Mahayana has a lot of um, de deities in it, a lot of, um, 
different Buddhas and different kinds of um, Bodhisattvas. So Theravada does too, but they tend to be more like angelic beings and spirits and so forth, mm-hmm. not Buddhas, because there's really only one Buddha in the in the Theravada tradition that's really kind of like um, uh, worshipped or or, or um, uh, kind of statues, you know, of, of of just really one Buddha. In Mahayana, there's there's countless Buddhas and stuff. Uh, and, and bodhisattvas for for all kinds of different things, and so this is the this is the tradition that's a lot more kind of um, theistic in in mm-hmm. certain respects. Um, is this too much detail? Should I no, keep going? No, no, this is the keep going. I mean, <laughs> okay. I'm loving it, listeners. I mean, they're learning okay. about Buddhism and the different flavors, so this is great. <laughs> all right, all right. So um, there are many, many, many kinds of Mahayana Buddhism, like I said, um, and this is practiced all over. past Cambodia, you know, and, and even Indonesia, we're also Mahayana Buddhist. So it's really spread widespread and it's got a lot of different flavors. You know, Japanese Mahayana is different than Chinese, different than Mongolian, different than, you know, oh, it is. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, there's like tons of diversity in there. Um, but I would, I would, I would, in the book, I pick out two forms of Mahayana to talk about in a little more detail because mm-hmm. you're, you're more likely to run into them as a, uh, a Western person in, in, with, without Buddhism in your family or your cultural heritage, and you're looking for um, sort of an introduction. Uh, you're, so these two forms of Mahayana that I pluck out to talk about in more detail are Zen and Tibetan Buddhism. Um, so they're they're both forms of Mahayana, um, but they have kind of like they've they've evolved into their own special sort of. Um, categories i think so mm-hmm. uh just quickly you know zen uh, starts in china but it's primarily at least in the u.s maybe in canada too i'm not sure it's, it's primarily found in sort of its japanese um iteration although it's that it is that it it's is found in you know it's also you have um uh, zen comes from china but you know you also have um zen uh, is a major sect in um uh, Korea as well, but but it seems like in the in in North America we encounter it in its Japanese form, in most cases. Um, that that practice, at least the way that it's practiced in North America, is extremely meditation focused, um, yes. more so than all the other than all the other forms of um, um, Buddhism, and tends to be quite uh, austere in its meditation practice, very serious, um, um, and and and. Um, then the the Tibetan Buddhism, just sort of like a completely other, completely different um, animal, is a really colorful tradition with all sorts of um, diverse practices and and uh, um, uh, sects and frameworks just even within itself. So it's not like there's one Tibetan Buddhism, um, but uh, Tibetan Buddhism is a type of Buddhism that incorporates much more so, I think, than any other traditions, a lot of uh, body practices and energy practices, um, working with deities because it's a form of Mahayana. So there's a lot of a lot of deities and you know bodhisattvas and Buddhas and so forth. Um, uh, but this is the place to go if you're interested in things like you know um, energy work and chakra cultivation and sort of like how that connects with with meditation and, and um, Buddhist practice. It's it's really primary. You know that's kind of like what Tibetan Buddhism is really known for, it is. among other things. But that's one one kind of, it's not unique to Tibetan Buddhism because you do find that in certain... But it's on the poster cover, let's put it that way. Like yeah. What you're describing with body work practices, like having done Shaolin Kung Fu, you don't get to that level, like what Tibetan Buddhism says openly, until you're like high, high level Chao Lin. And even then, they'll mm. give you the hints of it, I find. They're like, well, it's this poem. I'm like, really? Thanks. I've been doing horse dance for how long now? <laughs> But it's with Tibetan, they're a little more straightforward on that point. I thought. Yeah, I think that's the. It's, I think that's been somewhat controversial because they used to keep it a lot more. The traditions used to keep it a lot more um, under wraps, and now Tibetan teachers are teaching things pretty openly, like you said. Yeah. Um, yeah, for better or worse, that's the kind of the cat's out of the bag um, with with a lot of those practices. Um, so that so that so I've got four so far: Theravada, Mahayana uh zen and, and tibetan buddhism and then the, yep. the fifth that i talk about um in the book just to kind of orient yourself to 
is something that scholars call Buddhist modernism. And I, I don't know if it, you know, if, if it necessarily makes any sense to a regular reader to, to hear that word, but this is the category of, of uh, Buddhisms that are framing the teachings and framing the practice in, in, in either completely or almost completely secular ways. Um, so, you know, Buddhism, if you hear the line that Buddhism is a philosophy or a way of life and the Buddha was a great philosopher and psychologist and had a lot of insight into the human mind that is now being verified by science and you can practice, you know, meditation in this Buddhist style in order to understand better your psychology and to do things like stress reduction and improve your health outcomes. You're, you're, that's a Buddhist modernist kind of um, interpretation of Buddhism. So here, you know, you don't find deities, you don't find, um, you know, you don't find that you have archetypes. Rebirth. You have archetypes on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't find rebirth and karma, and 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 a lot of times, um, you know, a lot of times secular Buddhists aren't even talking about you know enlightenment or awakening either. They're just talking about stress reduction and health yeah, outcomes and yeah. so forth. Um, which is a this is a modern form of Buddhism. It's not Western. Um, and it's not correct to call that a Western form of Buddhism. It's a global form of Buddhism because you find mm -hmm. Buddhist modernists, you know, to one to various degrees all over all over the planet. And um, you know, some of those trends started in places like Japan and Myanmar and so forth. So um, so it's you know it's another so all five of these forms of Buddhism are now global practice all over the world by all kinds of different people. Um, but uh, and, and so consequently, you walk into the bookstore and you want to learn something about Buddhism and you reach for the bookshelf, right? You've got like, you know, it's a crapshoot what you pull down. Which book are you pulling down? If you pull down a book by, you know, the Dalai Lama, you're getting Tibetan Buddhism with a little bit maybe of a secular spin. If you pull down a book by Stephen Batchelor, you're getting a totally secular form of Buddhist modernism. You pull down a book by Jack Cornfield, you may be getting a Theravada thing. You pull down a book right. by, you know, by, you know. On and on and on. You you don't know what you're getting. Um, I think the one that's that that's the least popular in sort of the bookstores in America is Mahayana Buddhism. Yes, but that's by far the most practiced form of Buddhism in at least in the U.S. Because this is the form of Buddhism that's practiced by the vast majority of uh, immigrants to uh, the U.S. from from Asia. Uh, so so I did a sort of a survey of uh, Buddhist temples here in Philadelphia. And there were, there were representatives of all the forms of Buddhism here in Philly, uh, but by far the most was the, um, the Chinese and uh, Vietnamese um, and Korean Mahayana Buddhist temples. Um, so it, it's just interesting kind of the, then I'll stop talking after I make this point, but it's interesting no, just no, I mean, the way that the... This is great information, and I'm like, I'm loving it, so... All right, good. Well, it's just interesting the way that, the, that these, these um, forms of Buddhism have like sort of like come into the into North America with these sort of like trends, right? After the war, after the World War II with Japan, suddenly, you know, um, yeah. Zen sort of became really, really popular when Tibet was invaded by the Chinese um, uh, yeah, military, then the Tibetan trend. Buddhism became really popular, right? Um, after the Vietnam War, then Theravada Buddhism started to become more popular. Uh, these days, secular Buddh or Buddhist modernism is, is kind of like the... the kind of most sort of popular in terms of popular media and the press and, and you know, and, and, and so forth. Um, meanwhile, Mahayana has been the most, most commonly practiced in North America all along. And it's just kind of like a little bit um, under the radar um, because, because it's primarily being practiced by, you know, people who aren't necessarily um, writing books in English and making a big splash in popular media. It is true about that. Like with Mahayana, I mean, I'd say that's my background on things. I mean, but shit, I, I started in Shaolin Kung Fu. It doesn't get more Mahayana than that, right? So it's like even from those practices, it is interesting because you see a lot of the at least East Asian population. Um, again, it's not going to be in English. There's plenty of literature if you read a secondary language so, or a primary language that, such as Chinese, Japanese, or Korean, right? Yeah. And it just doesn't get outside the ethnic community on that. Yeah. And then, um, I mean, they're very welcome. The friend was like, just come on in. There's food, right? But <laughs> food. <laughs> but like, who doesn't want food? But it's one of these things where unless you're engaged with the culture now, you're not going to know of that. And yeah. that, that, I think this is important with at least 
um, different types of Buddhism. It's like, are you not paradigm shifting, but are you even engaging with the culture? Because a lot of the practices with the folk magic side of things, or even just the meditation side of things, you see this right in the culture. So I could talk to most Chinese people, and they're like, yeah, you just meditate. You're like, how do you even know meditate? It's a thing as an overall cultural thing. Whether or not they do it or not, they know of it. Like that's how ingrained it is. I yeah, yeah. Just just two points to make um, real quick. And one of them is like back to like how I got into the field yeah. and so forth. Um, this is this is actually one of the major reasons I went into uh, Chinese Buddhism, specifically Mahayana. Um, was because at the time, like I, I said, Strickman's book came out. I got really jazzed up about it. Yeah. Um, but at the time, there were lots of people, um, even at the University of Virginia where I was, there were a lot of people studying Tibetan Buddhism. Um, you know, and I had just come from the Theravada Buddhist world and I knew about all this sort of, um, mm -hmm. you know, meditation centers and so forth. Um, and, and for me, the kind of just be, becoming aware of Chinese Mahayana through Strickland's book just really kind of like opened my eyes to a whole, a whole kind of, you know, tradition that, that was really unknown to me and got me really excited about learning. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, so I wanted to say that, um. Uh, and then, and then the other thing I was going to say was, what, what was it? Hmm. See, we're live, so I can't edit it out. So, so well, it's all more... right. I mean, it's, I was going to say, I was going to say something else. So it'll, it'll come back. Yeah. It'll come back. I, I, I think this is where, again, it's like, at least from my perspective, again, we're always big about like getting to engage the culture, no matter what paradigm you're in, know yeah. where it's coming from because it's going to have an influence on you. Like uh, last yeah. week we were um, having a conversation on Afro-Caribbean things. And it's saying, like, those particular cultures, they have to get external results because there was, you know, the colonial background to that. So if you're working in that um, environment, those results magically made a difference. And that's how you brought community together. And that's why they have, like, these big meals because, you know, a sacrifice of a pig or things like that, that was a meal for the community, right, when there was not much going on. So it's things like this where it kind of gives you an in where there's academic research side of things, but I would say at least talk to someone from the culture, just like level to them and just be like, let's have a coffee. Let me understand what your culture is because you'll get a better understanding of what that magical system does at that point. Um, at least where its values stand to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I remember what I was going to say, what I was going to respond to earlier also, you know, related to that is, um, you know, just your comment about how sort of Buddhist techniques like meditation are just kind of diffused within the Chinese culture, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and I, you know, that's something that, that as scholars, we kind of sort of push back against the, what essentially is a, is a, is a Christian, um, or maybe it's a, like a kind of a European Middle Eastern kind of idea that, that you can, um, you can, you can only you have you have to be an adherent of one religion at a time yes. right that you that you you and, and when you're an adherent of one religion that you must uh not dabble in things from other religions because that's somehow like blasphemous or inappropriate mm -hmm. so that that concept i mean there are there definitely are some people and some texts in historically you know sometimes where that kind of purity was more prevalent than in, in mm -hmm. others but for the most part you know, it, at the popular sort of culture level in, in, in China for, you know, for, for Chinese cultural diaspora as well, for most of history, um, freely intermix Buddhism, Taoism, and Confucianism, um, as Absolutely. well as whatever local kind of like spirit traditions and magic and healing and so forth, um, just freely mixed in all kinds of ways. So the borrowing back and forth between all of these traditions of, of practices, um, not to mention also the borrowing of practices across cultural boundaries with neighboring cultures has, has been sort of like... There's a huge thing. It's like even yeah, like I won't be able to pronounce the Sanskrit on this, but Guanyin was initially a male in Hinduism, or at least uh, um, the Indic versions of influence of Buddhism, and then it turned to a female. You're like, really? Okay, well, this is definitely a Sino concept. Now, what's happening with the transformation? Why did it adapt this way, right? from one personification to another yeah and that's a whole interesting story by itself <laughs> yeah 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 so I, I i won't get the details right but the right. The, the there's a book called um called Kuan Yin, uh written by um uh uh i know which book you're talking about but i can't remember the uh, Jin, Jin Yu Fang. um and she she argues or she like lays out the whole history of that where 
essentially, you know, this male bodhisattva from from India, which is also found in Hinduism and other other Indic religions, but is you know is the male bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara in India. Yeah. You know, is introduced to China is actually male for a while, but then undergoes this this transformation by synthesizing or syncretizing or mm-hmm. hybridizing the, the Indian bodhisattva with uh, a local um, folk goddess in southeastern China, um, who was like kind of like the protector of the ocean, the protector of yeah, the sea. Yeah, so seas. that's uh, Mao Shanamaju, um, right? So yeah, yeah. So so like you know, that's a great example of this kind of like cross-cultural um, borrowing and remaking and hybridization. That That's essentially, that's my whole shtick as a scholar. Like that's what I study is like how particularly medical or healing techniques cross those boundaries and get reinterpreted, translated and reinterpreted, or you could say adopted and adapted, right? It constantly in, in, in between China and other cultures. That's kind of my 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 main focal point as a scholar. So I've written a lot of stuff on 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 that in terms of medical practices, healing practices, rituals, mm-hmm. etc. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can get, have a whole side conversation on like medical practices with mantras, dharnis and all that mm-hmm. other stuff, right? Oh, but, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I I would just to to just throw something in too cuz yeah. you you've mentioned a couple times now sort of like paradigm shifts or like getting mm-hmm. like embedded in a cultural paradigm and so forth. Yeah. Um uh, so, I mean, one one thing that's interesting to me that I kind of pay attention to in these in these uh, transactions or these exchanges that I'm talking about um, is a lot of times kind of like ritual technologies or material culture or like specific objects or specific kind of like yes. you know chants or or other kind of ingredients are kind of like extracted out of um, you could say the source culture right. or the source paradigm. And are sort of like fit into a new cultural Absolutely. paradigm or a new new linguistic kind of context, um, where they're doing something completely different <laughs> in the new context than they were in the old context, right? Um, and, and so I'm interested in those instances where where that's happening. But then I'm also interested in the instances where the whole paradigm comes along with it, right? Mm-hmm. And so you have like um, in medieval China, you have these cases where you know, medieval Chinese writers, I'm reading their texts, you know, and they're, and they're kind of like grappling with these ideas from India and these models of, you know, health or healing or whatever. And, and trying to figure out like, how does this fit with what we do in China? Like, is it going to, is, does it just like translate directly into Chinese medicine or is it something different that we need to, you know, uh, accommodate this new paradigm. And so it's really interesting that this kind of dilemma that we have today with cross-cultural exchange and borrowing and appropriation and all of that, <laughs> you know, I, I see it in the text from, you know, 1500 years ago, they're grappling with the same exact issues. Um, and it's like, um, especially like, you know, well, I'll bring up one particular text. I can't remember the name of it, but generally it was in China. They, I mean, they were using this as a Buddhist astrology technique specifically but it's been the picatrix in greece and it went through india mm. so they have to put the whole lunar nodes in there being rahu and ketu and the chinese are like we don't have an equivalent to this we can put the elements to the other plants this makes sense but this we have no clue and you see that translation where they're trying to grapple with it and then they put in a Taoist take on it because mm-hmm. that's what's yeah. made of and I, I find that hilarious because there's you could literally look at the scriptures between like the text i think it in particular the han dynasty when that transmission was happening and they're like literally looking at Dallas and saying like, okay, this is what they're doing. How do we adapt it to the culture now when we don't use those specific terms? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know too much about ast- uh, astrology, but, um, right. but uh, you, you might be talking about the work of Jeffrey Kotick. I, I'm not exactly sure how to say his last I name. I can't recall the author, but yeah, it's K-Y-O-T-I. It sounds familiar. It might be. Ik, I think. Um, anyway, he's a he's a Canadian scholar, recent PhD, um, who's written he's written a number of things on um, sort of exactly that kind of yeah. uh, you know Near Eastern Persian yeah. Chinese uh, kind of like nexus of uh, astrological right. um, borrowings and mm-hmm. K O T Y K. I think it's just that. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, somebody somebody to have on this this. Uh, <laughs> this series of talks here because he'd be really interesting to talk to 
it would be interesting but it's like it's just funny how it's like in the native culture you again it's that source paradigm it's like okay we have this and how does this translate here and everyone's just kind of grappling and i don't want to say drawing straws um but it is this like well how do we make this work in whatever the values of that culture is and adapting yeah. the technologies i mean i i like i just like to think about how similar that is to what we're doing today like absolutely the difference is we, we're doing it much faster today like you can you can get more and more and more information to assimilate into your new synthesis today right just go online and there's constantly yeah. new new stuff you know pouring in and, and and that kind of thing took you know hundreds of years to get information back in the you know first millennium but 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 a lot of the dynamics are really similar to today right where where initial borrowings of material kind of like tend to misunderstand the material and fit it into whatever we're already doing, right? So we just kind mm -hmm. of like appropriate things and, and fit it into what we're doing. And then, then there's kind of like a, let's, let's go back and look at it. We get more information from the source culture. We go back and we kind of refine those ideas. And then suddenly, you know, they, those ideas take on more kind of, fidelity to the original source and they start to push back against our ideas and then we then we have to grapple with like well which paradigm is right and yeah i mean there's so much of that happening right now with um the adoption in north america of mm -hmm. um asian medicine asian religions meditation techniques martial arts you know across the board um and it's really this process you know is is uh it's, it's such a it has such a long history these kinds of uh, cross-cultural exchanges I, I i find that to be fascinating myself and i learn a lot by looking at what people did 1500 years ago and then looking at what people are doing today and seeing sort of they're just being like no it's not the same so <laughs> so with that said pierce is there any events anything you're doing coming up any new publications i know this is the newest one obviously but is there anything else you got on the docket coming up that people can uh, look into. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I guess I guess I'll just say if any if anybody's super interested in like Buddhist healing magic specifically is um, to to look at um, a book I published in 2017, uh, which is an edited volume. It's super expensive, so don't buy it. But um, you can find the chapters kind of like around online. Um, it, it's a it's a, one of those academic books that are only made in hardcover for for library purchases so it's not it's not accessible price but anyway the um in that 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 book 2017 book it's called an anthology buddhism and medicine anthology and that book has um 62 chapters of translations of texts that were that were done by me and a whole team of other scholars um and a good chunk of those relate to um buddhist healing rituals and, and magical practices um how, and give instructions on how to do them and the implements that you need to do them and so forth um it's just the tip of the iceberg but it's it's um it'll give you a sense of of the the kind of the flavor of the materials um in terms of in terms of upcoming stuff um uh i have another book coming uh coming up which is an edited volume with another few scholars on sort of modern contemporary buddhist medicine um that should be coming out maybe a year from now or so. Um, and the other big big news is I'll be starting a podcast. So, uh, interviewing scholars about their um, about their work in the field of Buddhism and medicine. So, if that's something people are interested in following, um, I don't have any details about it right now. But you can maybe there just you you look at my website or or find me on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. And you'll, you'll you'll keep informed. Good, good. So, with that said. Uh, thank you, Pierce, for popping on today. For listeners, again, we do have our sponsor shows on every other Sunday. Uh, we are going to finish up the Crown Chakra uh, tomorrow, and then from there, we're going to work on Western Elementals, uh, Elemental Forces. Then we're going to get into a deep dive with the Tarot. So with that, all the fun stuff. So if you become a sponsor, $40 a month or so, you get two, almost two and a half, three years worth of access materials with rituals and workshops. And then you get access to our physical library, which has 700 books and more. So with that, we have plenty of stuff happening. Also, sponsors get to see our co-op programs when we actually start doing um, uh, different potions, herbs, incenses, that type of things that we build for the store directly. So if you're a sponsor, you can see that live. 
online or in person, obviously, since we're in a medical facility, uh, you have to wear a mask and we have to do a temp check. But past that, um, that's all the announcements. Andrea will be back with us next week on uh, Dallas Magic specifically. So this is going to be a fun conversation because Woozum, Dowsum, I love it. I love it. <laughs> so we have that. So check out those details next week. Uh, we are moving that show up because it is going to be on a London time for our interview week. So it will be at 11.30 a.m. our time, but it's going to be 4.30 uh, p.m. their time. So with that, stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll see you next week. Deeper Down the Rabbit Hole is sponsored by the Queen City Curio and Apothecary in Toronto, Ontario. Proudly in East Chinatown. Our store is at 607 Gerard Street East, Unit 401. Just take the elevator up to the fourth floor and we're right there. We carry the finest spiritual goods for all spiritual paths. Whatever you are into, we can help. Check out our full public library of occult materials with over a thousand books. Accessible anytime the store is open. Check us out online at queencitycurio.ca. Be sure to leave a wish at our wish shrine right outside our door. You never know, it may just come to pass.